is knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 487. Jason Lingren is with me, and Michael Hoffman returns. Uh, you may recall that he was on when he released his latest work, Twilight Language. The episodes that he has joined us on are 254, 336. Um, before I get the guys in here, uh, I've gotten so much email, people asking about James Shelby Downard, the writings that are available, which ones are authentic. Well, we've got the man who knows. Uh, you may recall that he co-authored, I don't know if that's the right word, he can correct me, but I believe he co-authored King Kill 33, which is a text that probably did as much as anything I've read in the modern era to help my mind frame what's going on in this madhouse. Some of the books by Michael Hoffman are The Twilight Language, which we covered and I read. There's another one called The Occult Renaissance of the Church of Rome. If you would like to read a book that has true, high-level, old-school research, this would be the book for you. There's another one called They Were White and They Were Slaves, The Untold History of the Enslavement of Whites in Early America. And then here's another one that he wrote that's on the top of my bookshelf called Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. There are others, lesser-known works, Usury in Christendom, uh, Adolf Hitler, The Enemy of the People, and I'm going to let him cover some of the other ones uh, as we get in. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a hot good morning. All right, let's do this. Michael Hoffman, welcome back. So glad to have you. Thank you, Crow. It's good to be here. Did I drop any significant holes in your published works because I'm using the internet, which is less useful each day? Well, there's a few titles, but I think that you hit the main ones that would be of interest to your readers. There are a few other titles, but uh, just what you've mentioned is uh, a boatload to handle for today, I think. (laughs) It is. Twilight Language is the latest, and I think we're going to touch on Revelation of Method, which I first learned about through King Kill 33. For those who have an interest in the Church of Rome, the book, The Occult Renaissance of the Church of Rome, again, it's, it's like research used to be like when my father was in the prime of his life. We don't have many researchers these days doing it like this. But Michael, I get so many emails of people trying to find works of James Shelby Downard. And can we just list out what's real, what's not real? And also, I want to mention they're finding Adam Go Rightly. So maybe you could say a word on that. One of the Adam Go Rightly books is called James Shelby Downard's Mystical War. For some reason, they're censoring the hell out of this book. I've seen it sell now. It's, it's a small paperback. I don't know, 100, 120 pages. It's not a big book. I've seen it sell for from $250 up to about six or $700, which I assume is some form of censorship. Anyhow, that was a lot of words. Where would you like to jump in in this regard? Well, with Adam Go Rightly, um, I consider him to be a, a good kid uh, with a uh, beneficial attitude towards Mr. Downard and his entire ooze. Um, I think maybe the book is rare because uh, Adam, and that's a pen name, but uh, Adam has got some other issues that he's dealing with. And uh, again, this is speculation, but I think that he just hasn't had the time or perhaps even the resources to reprint the book. And um, there's also a book by a uh, University of Idaho historian, or is it Boise State? Somebody who's an academic based here in Idaho, who um, did some in-depth research on Shelby's uh, youth and uh, because he was born on the um, Indian Territory in Oklahoma. 
1913, and this fellow went in and got some statistical data. Um, I'm not sure it's that strong on the interpretation of Shelby's life, but the but the data is there. I, I and I didn't know this morning that we would be discussing the minutiae of Mr. Downer, but I can I can send you by email. Uh, once I get into my files, uh, the actual title of that, it's more like a pamphlet or an article, if I'm thinking correctly. The issue I have with the main extant book of Shelby's that's out there is called Carnivals of Life and Death. And originally, um, Shelby had bequeathed that manuscript to me in his typical uh, way that he distributed his work, which was through the old Kinko's Copy Company, if you remember them, they since were taken over by FedEx office. And he would go down to Kinko's and he'd get his uh, writings printed off there in 20 or 30 or 50 copies. And I got one of them and I read through it and I understood that this was his, there was uh, there was some concrete information in there. And there was also his satire. He had a wonderful sense of humor and you had to kind of be inside that humor for the inside jokes and things like that. And so I had a publisher approach me and say, um, what do you think about us? doing a scaled down version of this, editing it and cleaning it up. Well, I didn't like the term cleaning it up, but I think by editing, maybe they meant grammatically and things like that. And what happened was, unfortunately, is that by reducing it from the some 400 pages that it was down to, I think, a manageable, maybe less than 300, and that is on Amazon and other sources, um, they took out a great deal of the pointers to satire. Some of the satire is still in there, but the indicators, the subtle indicators that Mr. Downard uh, gave that he was kind of making fun of some of the exaggerations of the conspiracy theory movement, that didn't come through. So what happens is it's been used by the enemies of James Shelby Downard to say he was completely off his rocker, um, that uh, he was a fantasist and a BS artist and all these other things, which kind of breaks my heart because as uh, having been mentored by him, and having had so much of my own uh, worldview and gestalt opened uh, by Mr. Downer, the notion that he's being blackened, his reputation is being blackened in this way because of a satirical book. I wonder if, if in 21st century epistemology, people understand that some of the great books of our time, Gargantuan Pantagruel by uh, Rabelais and many others, uh, are satires, and we have to sift through where the author is being serious and where he isn't. That's kind of sometimes the author's jest on an audience that isn't sufficiently literate. In other words, some of these people, I'm not saying they're arrogant, but they're rather dismissive of people who don't have powers of concentration. Whether that was actually Shelby's intent, I never noticed that in him. But for whatever reason, occasionally he could be satirical and humorous. So that book has been used against him. And I really recommend at some point that uh, if we can get the original manuscript uh, printed in Xerox form, I mean, I really wouldn't have the resources to put it out as a hardcover or paperback book. Maybe we could offer that. But in terms of extant publications that I would uh, say represent him, it's just what you mentioned at the top of the broadcast, King Kill 33 is just about it. Now, there also is um, Skullduggery, which he did. I mean, I basically have in my archive four or five of his different pamphlets, some uh, repeat material, others are original, and we have to get going on that. The only problem is I don't have any kind of personal assistant or stuff like that. We've got a lady who works in our shipping room. We've got a, a tech guy who watches over us for our security. 
And I've got some people who give me advice and, of course, colleagues who share information. But the, the onus of the workload is entirely on me. And so people regard me as kind of slow going, but I'm working on another large book like um, the Occult Renaissance Church of Rome. And when I fall into a task like that, it just becomes all encompassing. So I don't mean to come up with an alibi or anything, but it's just the nature of uh, the reality for me as a working writer. But hopefully we can get some of those in print. And thanks to you, you've been one of the main drivers of sustained interest in Mr. Downard's work. And of course, he's the one that really came up with something that's sweeping America today, which is the revelation of the method in terms of the terminal condition of the American people today and how the cryptocracy is related to that. All right. Two things here. Please say the name of the last book you mentioned one more time. King Kill 33? No, it was the uh, other one where the satire was unindicated. Right. Carnivals of Life and Death. All right. Which I have read. And when I read it, it felt to me like someone was doing a slam piece because it did. It went it went too far. And I didn't until just now I heard you say the words. It felt like someone was purposely trying to make it seem like a carnival barker in certain places. The other thing is, what would it take if you had some form of funding? Would you be able to get the downward materials out? (laughs) Uh, no, because I guess I'm not much of a materialist when I kind of get zoned in on a project and the next book, I'll just tell your listeners is entitled, uh, the ruling class war against poor and working class whites. And when I say that, that book will not detract and is not intended to detract one iota from the misery and horror of the transatlantic slave trade that afflicted, uh, African people and black people in the antebellum South. It's something entirely different. And I've talked with some of my black colleagues and they're in agreement with me that people need to know more about the sufferings and struggles because I am an enemy of predatory capitalism. I am in favor of free enterprise, but the two are distinct and quite often people don't make that distinction. And so in terms of predatory capitalism, the big losers uh, in the rise of that particular usurious capitalism have been Uh, And in in the West, in Europe and in North America, the poor and working class whites. And so that's going to be a book of six, seven, eight hundred pages. I've just finished the outline on it. I've been collecting research on it for 20 years, but um, the writing of it is going to take up most of my time. So I don't I want to under promise and overachieve as my New Year's resolution for 2023. So I thank you for the kind offer of that. And if I get the time and there's an opening, because sometimes I just need to step back from a book in order to get a better perspective and take a breath, then I would take you up on that, Crow. It's very kind of you. Well, keep it in mind. What King Kill did for me was all of a sudden I had all these like kind of jagged edges in my mind and they all lined up and I walked away with a whole ability to deal with things in a new way. As a matter of fact, when I read your book, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare, it felt to me like that was the most downward-esque of the things that you've written that I have read. But when we do this episode, there's going to be a whole new renewed push for King Kill. So people go, it's the, as far as I know, the only place you're going to get King Kill 33 is from revisionisthistory.org. What we're going to do here is people have trouble finding it on the site. So Rose, I know you're listening. Let's make a note to track down King Kill on revisionist history and get a link into the top comment when this goes out. Just me, let let me say parenthetically, Crow, if they go to revisionisthistory.org and then click on the News Bureau, 
and then go down the page on News Bureau. They'll come to the link for King Kill 33, also Twilight Language and the others. But go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no problem. Um, Rose, let's make a copy of that. I want to get the links in because I get so many emails. But can you explain your relationship to King Kill and to Downard? Sure. Well, I was friends with a fellow who I'll just use his pen name. I think what, that's what he prefers now. He's about 85 years old. At the time I knew him, I actually met him in 1974. He was in his 30s. Uh, one of the most brilliant men I ever met. And he's the gentleman. And by the way, Jim Brandon is his name, uh, his pen name. And uh, another expensive book, like you're talking about, Adam Gorightly's, is Jim Brandon's book, uh, Rebirth of Pan, Hidden Faces of the American Earth Spirit, which I think many of your readers would be very excited to uh, encounter. Earlier, uh, he had a major book. Uh, he had a book published by a major publishing house, which was E.P. Dutton in the 1970s. And that one's titled Weird America, also highly recommended. And I don't think it's hard to find because it was published uh, en masse by that particular uh, publisher. But uh, Rebirth of Pan was privately uh, published by Mr. Brandon. And so maybe there were a thousand or two thousand copies, but I do recommend it. It's for those who are interested in pre-Columbian America and its many alchemical and occult mysteries. That's the key to it. Well, anyway, returning to Mr. Downard, uh, Mr. Downard was a peripatetic uh, researcher. He knew the American Southwest like the back of his hand. I may have mentioned that on a previous broadcast. He almost never ventured into the Northeast. Um, I'm not saying he had a bigotry towards Northern people, but he was just quintessentially a Southwestern man. Uh, one time he made a foray up here to where I am in the Pacific Northwest, but I wasn't here at that time. He stayed for about a year and I don't think he enjoyed himself that much. But uh, Jim Brandon knew that he was um, down in St. Petersburg, Florida. And Mr. Downard at the time was uh, very much enamored of uh, RVs. And uh, he had an RV and he would move from different trailer camps, even though he had the money to buy a house or whatever. But um, he was really nomadic, especially in terms of his research. He kind of followed the American earth spirit the way he suggested that this earth spirit was part of the conspiracy picture with his interest in lines of latitude and longitude, and particularly the 33rd degree line. And because of that, in my book, Twilight Language, uh, I started looking, for example, at the 42nd degree line, which even mainstream historians, they don't recognize the uh, lines of latitude, but they do recognize that strange things that had an enormous impact on American history happened in upstate New York. And they call that the psychic highway, believe it or not, mainstream sober academics or the burned over district because the enthusiasm was so great that it was a fire of passion inside of people. So I decided to look along the 42nd degree line and that helped me a great deal to open another vista, which is what uh, Mr. Downard had the ability to do. Well, he was in St. Petersburg and there was uh, another very sharp and astute researcher who was friends with uh, Mr. Downard. He's still alive. I believe he's also an octogenarian. That's Charles Saunders, whose uh, one claim to fame among his many accomplishments as a scholar was that he spent the last um, five or six weeks of the life of Jack Kerouac, the beatnik uh, poet and the author of On the Road and very famous literary man. And uh, the Kerouacs uh, were friends with the Saunders family in St. Petersburg, Kerouac's mother and so forth. I digress, but I just want to point that out because most, you know, it, it, Henry Ford said history is bunk. And when you look at the life of 
Jack Kerouac, you realize how true that is because here's Charles Saunders who spent the last six or eight weeks with uh, Jack Kerouac, uh, very close with him almost on a daily basis. Try and find the name Charles Saunders in an index of the numerous biographies of Jack Kerouac. It's not there. Uh, Charles was uh, right wing. Some people would call him far right. I think it's considered that his relationship with Kerouac's relationship with the Saunders family was somewhat discrediting in the eyes of the politically correct. So they've just censored Charles out of the picture. And yet he has some has had some important testimony about Kerouac in those last weeks. So uh, Charles has a near photographic memory, multilingual research assistant to Mr. Downard. And I was introduced to Mr. Downard in 1976 um, down there. And uh, we would meet almost on a daily basis. I was staying at Jim Brandon's house. Jim was running. uh, He was almost as nomadic as Mr. Downard was. He was running a place down there, I think in Tampa. No, Pinellas Park. Yeah. And so um, we'd go over almost every day. Shelby would cook up some hamburgs or if it was evening then we weren't eating and we would discuss uh, the various things that have influenced me for the rest of my life. And uh, there was some really sparkling conversation with Jim Brandon, Charles Saunders and James Shelby Downard, I can assure you. And uh, yeah, it was wonderful. And there is uh, briefly on Amazon Crow, um, there was a, uh, a CD released on an interview that Jim Brandon had done with Mr. Downard. So you get to hear his voice and uh, that's since been withdrawn. So that's unfortunate. It's another thing to look for. I'm not sure how they titled it, but it's very rare though. I, I tried to do a search like you've done and, and I didn't come up with it. I have an old copy of it on cassette, but not really authorized to hand it out. But it, it is of certain interest, especially to listen to his voice because he sounds like you know an old Southwestern prospector or, and uh, it, it was wonderful. But yes, that expanded my horizons tremendously. And then to answer the second part of your question, when I returned to my home base in New York, where for a while I was a, a reporter for the Associated Press, the New York Bureau of the Associated Press, um, Mr. Downard sent me a huge box, as I recall. I can still remember getting it. And it had all his notes on the assassination of President Kennedy from an occult point of view. And they were scattered around. Um, He trusted me with that. And he asked me to put it into the kind of uh, word craftsmanship that I guess he believed that I had the ability to do. And uh, he allowed me to make the changes. He didn't edit anything out of the changes that I made or the things that I added that were my own evaluation opinion. And so that's what became after about six months of me uh, collating that and compiling that. That's what became King Kill 33. And then if you want to know how that was popularized, uh, it was Adam Parfrey in his Feral House uh, uh, company. Uh, actually, it was called a Muck Press, I think, originally, A-M-O-K, and then it became Feral House. But anyway, he did Apocalypse Culture. And the first edition of that, I recommend, I don't think the second edition, it's expanded, but to me, it didn't grab me the way the first one did. And so he contacted me and he said, um, would this guy Downard want his King Kill 33 published? And I said, yes, he would, because I know he loves publicity. I actually took some flack for that from other people who said, oh, you're assuming too much about Shelby. But actually, I hadn't. I knew that if I had proposed it to him, it, he would just kind of get nervous about it. And, you know, who is this guy Parfrey? What's happening? And I had known Adam for uh, quite a while until he got really sick with the diabetes and and that ended up killing him. Um, and that turned him into somebody different from the original Adam Parfrey, in my opinion. 
But I thought Adam was a really cool guy and uh, responsible, and he was very hard worker and responsible. So uh, parts of uh, King Kill 33 went into apocalypse culture, and Adam became uh, as fascinated with Mr. Downard as it seems you are, and actually met with him in Memphis, which is where uh, Mr. Downard died. He was living with his sister in her, his sister's home in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, when he died there. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of the basis of how he became popular in that countercultural circle around Parfrey, which was pretty strong in the um, late 80s and early 90s. Adam had a lot of attention from the New York Times and mainstream publishers. And, you know, we could say, well, that's a mark against him. But actually, he had integrity up until the time where um, he collapsed due to went into a coma for the diabetes. They put a shunt in his brain. Um, he did recover some of his lucidity, but he just didn't, he just wasn't the same after that. And unfortunately, I think that some people took advantage of him because he's actually the publisher of that problematic uh, Carnivals of Life and Death text. But I really couldn't take him to tax on it, uh, take him to task on it, uh, Crow, because he was so ill at the time. So, okay, a few things here. Uh, Apocalypse Culture by Adam Parfrey, P-A-R-F-R-E-Y. You can find it on Amazon, but here's the thing. Weird America by Jim Brandon and The Rebirth of Pan, The Hidden Faces of American Earth Spirit by Jim Brandon are both labeled out of print on Amazon. So if anybody finds those two Jim Brandon books or the associated CD with James Shelby Downard's voice, uh, please bring that into the uh into the comments section. Here's my thing. Michael actually shared some stuff with me, which I keep private, but we need to get our hands on all these things. Um, There's going to come a day when libraries are not going to be what libraries once were. You can already see how Amazon and how the AI is starting to make things hard to find. Uh, Point is, we should all be grabbing these books if we can afford them and stash them away and figure out who we're going to inherit them to. But anyhow, when did King Kill become King Kill? Was it a bunch of works that had been put together? Who who was responsible for pulling it all together and giving it the title so that it became a cogent piece? I was. That was all you. I suspected that it was. As a matter of fact, I hear echoes of that in the other book you wrote that I mentioned, um, particularly with, what was it Seattle? The, the monolith was it in Seattle? I don't recall. Yes. Yeah, so you're writing about the monolith, and in my mind, I could see the echoes of the footprints of James Shelby Downard. What year was that all pulled together? Do you remember? 76, 1976. So way, way back. Can you imagine if this information would have found a wider audience back then? What are your great memories? I mean, uh, what could you tell people? Because what I've noticed is there's a lot of writing out there that's about a hit piece to marginalize. Mr. Downard, um, or to make him a kook in some way. And the book that you mentioned made me feel that way. I felt like it was a bridge too far, not understanding that there were indicators that that were supposed to be letting you know this is all satire here we're talking about. But what do you recall about the man? Well, he was paradoxical in that he was a very tough guy. Um, He was muscular. He was probably about five feet, 10 inches tall, very strong and muscular. There was a gun within reach wherever he was residing. So if you were in that uh, Airstream trailer of his, uh, within five or six feet of anywhere he strode was a pistol. And he also had a cowboy pistol hanging up in the window. 
Uh, he obviously didn't feel threatened by uh, the three musketeers, you know, Jim Brandon, Charles Saunders, and Michael Hoffman. So that was hanging right there out in the open. Um, but at the same time, he had this tremendous compassion because I was sort of a poet maudit at that time in my life. I mean, I had a lot of troubles in my life, a lot of issues uh, that were going on. And Mr. And other people were then say, oh, well, this is discredited Hoffman. You know, he's out of the picture. And and Shelby, because he had gone through a lot in his early life, and especially with the woman that he would marry, um, that he was always compassionate about people who were having these difficulties. And he was on the alert for seeing whether or not this mind of mystic power, as he referred to the collective group mind that was being um, more or less parasitized by the cryptocracy, whether or not that was causing uh, a scapegoat type pattern. You know, he was a pattern detector and he saw in my own life and he saw it in other people's life too, that he thought that because of my research propensities that I was falling into a scapegoat pattern and that part of it was a cult. He had tremendous compassion on Ted Kaczynski, who both Mr. Downard and I both agreed if he did any of the Unabomber uh, atrocities, it was uh, one or two and not more than that because he was under FBI surveillance for most of the time. And I've written fairly extensively about that in secret societies and psychological warfare. But uh, so there's Ted Kaczynski. And then, of course, when Mr. Downard, he always wants the map. You know, he's a synchro mystic or geomanticist. And so he wants to look at the map. Well, if you look at the adopted hometown of Ted Kaczynski in Lincoln, Montana, right there on the Continental Divide, you will see that uh, Kaczynski was living in something called the scapegoat wilderness. And in the little wow. town of Lincoln, in the little town of Lincoln, where he was much beloved because I got there within 48 hours of his arrest. And that's what you really want to do on on things like this before a script has been imposed on the people who are eyewitnesses and their own memory gets replaced by the script. And uh, yeah, he was much beloved in tutoring of the local kids in math, a gentle uh, person, according to those people. Now, I understand a lot of criminals have a split personality, so that's not the basis of why I believe that uh, that Kaczynski didn't do all the crimes. But uh, there was a scapegoat uh, tavern and lunch counter and of course, that sent Shelby into orbit because he felt that that was a, a synchronicity that had you know, tremendous meaning. He always wanted to travel to Lincoln, but his health was failing at that time. And he always wanted me to take him to Kansas City, Missouri, because he said he was always interested and he taught me about that history is underground. And the older the city, the more of its history would be beneath it. And he felt that was particularly true about Kansas City. And of course, when I went to Europe and I noticed in England, for example, that Underneath the Norman churches and the Norman shrines were the Saxon churches and the Saxon shrines, which, unlike the Norman ones, were of human scale. You know, the Normans had the large ascending uh, structures and edifices, which make the human being feel small. And, and whereas the human scale of the Saxon architecture was down below, having sunk under the weight of ages. And also, he made the um, insight about the American Southwest in its monumentalism. I mean, he really did know New Mexico, for example, just like the back of his hand, explored there uh, for just years and years. And what he talked about was the monumentalism, the giant features of, for example, Monument Valley and, and the uh, Rocky Mountains and how small man was in the face of that, as opposed to the spirit of the East, which was much older. The mountains had been worn down by erosion 
And he felt that was a sort of a more human scale. He was always aware of that proportionality. And so those would be two of the things, his compassion, but also his toughness, because his wife, and I believe I can mention her name now because she's deceased, Ann Whitwer, Annie Whitwer, he married her. And uh, she was taken away from him. And this is where you can either believe Mr. Downard or not, but I've never known him to tell a lie. So he said that she became, she fulfilled the role of the great whore, the scarlet woman in occult rituals that were conducted by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, using her as this uh, temple prostitute. And, and uh, he spied on her uh, and he spied on them, which made him a lifelong enemy of the FBI. He was also a lifelong enemy of the Ku Klux Klan because he believed, and he's correct in that, in my opinion, that the Klan never gets mentioned or seldom gets mentioned as being a Masonic organization. And, and Shelby, of course, was the nemesis of, of Freemasonry. And uh, so he's tracking uh, the FBI. He's tracking uh, his his um, estranged wife, uh, Anne, he's tracking them to La Jolla, where uh, J. Edgar Hoover went to the racetracks and stayed as a guest of the uh, Texas mafiosa, Clint Murchison. All of this came out in Downer's research. Uh, what a life of adventure that he led, including tracking uh, Anne Whitwer to the Mount Palomar telescope. It's very interesting that Jim Brandon brings out the fact that Mount Palomar had been originally an OTO temple, Ordo Templi Orientis temple, uh, and then that's where the cryptocracy decides to put uh, the world's big eye on the universe. I realize now that you know Mount Palomar is not much of a telescope compared to what we have orbiting in space, but at the time it was you know it was enormous and as the big eye on on the universe. And so, uh, according to Shelby, the telescope would be turned onto Sirius, the dog star Sirius. And then she would be irradiated with the light from Sirius, or if irradiated is too strong a word, just bathe, uh, you know, uh, we get a, a sun bath. This was a Sirius bath. And um, I believe he said that rituals were conducted as that light from Sirius was shown into the booth, whatever she was doing, God only knows. Um, sometimes Shelby was a little bit circumspect in describing it. He was still hurt. Years later, he greatly loved her. And but on the other hand, that's how God set him off on, on this uh, exploration uh, in depth. The intuition that he had, Jim Brandon mentioned this to me as well. He could just look at things that the rest of us passed by. I remember a motorcycle gang had come into town in Oklahoma where he was staying briefly, and he spotted that it was a satanic motorcycle gang. Not obviously, you know, they didn't have pentagram necklaces and things like that. It was some of the places that they had visited because uh, in, in that area, it's just charged with um, kind of a, a psychic power from the terrestrial spirit, as Jim Brandon then enlarged upon in his book, The Rebirth of Pan. So in a minute here, I'm going to ask Jason if he wants to get in on this. But with all you know, the things you have so fondly handed me privately, the things I've been able to dig up, uh, James Shelby Downer was no stranger to death. You can read about death traps that he narrowly escaped, I think, more than one time people being murdered, people being set up to be murdered. And I just think it needs to be framed because you're mentioning the gun thing. But to go back to Kaczynski for just a second, if I recall correctly, the Unabomber news story broke right as some big tobacco company was about to get run through the mill, if I remember correctly. Do you recall that at all? 
I don't. I don't recall that. No, I don't. But it, it, it wouldn't surprise me because they would have timed that. Yep. They, they, they had him under surveillance all the time. And I'll just add this so as not to keep your readers in suspense for those who still maintain interest in the case. Besides the fact that Kaczynski had been the subject of LSD experiments at Harvard University, also the fact that I know for a fact, because I'm almost a principal, a party to this in a sense, I do participatory journalism like that at that time when I was a working journalist. And that is that I know for a fact that the FBI didn't search for any accomplices. Now, for the cops in the audience that are listening today, especially the detectives, but also the patrolmen have a sense of this. An investigation of a crime really begins when you arrest the perpetrator. It doesn't end like Newsweek magazine uh, ended the Son of Sam case on the day that David Berkowitz was arrested. Okay, that's the day the case, you know, case closed is basically what Newsweek said in in 1977 in that famous issue with Berkowitz on the cover of it. And, you know, for all the cops in the audience, and I was a crime reporter for the Associated Press and worked with the police. And, uh, you know, there's some really good officers out there. And, you know, they realized that that's when you search for accomplices. Well, there wasn't. And um, I go into that in secret societies as to how I know that. So they're not looking for an accomplice because they had him under surveillance. He was their patsy and they were using him in that regard. It was another system oriented terrorism like Uvalde, Texas or Las Vegas, Nevada on down the line. So, Jason, I'm going to hand this over to you in a second. I want to touch on the telescope up at Palomar and the idea that they were putting light from Sirius in the Whore of Babylon again in King Kill and other writings, you can get Shelby's and Michael Hoffman as an editor point of view on many of these stories if you dig to get everything that you can get. By the way, I'll mention before I jump into this, uh, we've called into question the veracity of the space telescope. We've covered things like the Sophia aircraft, but I'm going to set all of that aside. For those of you who have heard our episodes. Jason has done a lot of research on, say, Albert Pike. Uh, The Blazing Star is serious. And so when you begin to hear uh, Shelby's account of what's going on here, and you've read things like Albert Pike's account of The Blazing Star, you really begin to realize. And what's always astonished me, Michael, how did he know all this? How did he figure all this out? It's never been clear to me I mean, some of the stories, he's a pretty young man that you're reading about, but how did he put all this together? Do you have any idea? Well, you know, as a Christian, I'm leery of the word shaman, but when I see the life of James Shelby Downer, because he almost, he wasn't religious, he had a respect for Christianity, but he wasn't a believer, but he almost had a Protestant type, let's say a very fundamental Puritan Protestant reaction against uh, any type of occultism and and any type of superstition. This was something that was very clear in his worldview. And so when you look at the situation of, um, for example, Albert Pike and and Sirius and all of these things, he was a kind of non-pagan shaman. Um, You know, I have to say that because from my Christian principles, you know, I kind of believe anything outside of of Christianity is suspect, and although there's plenty that's suspect inside of Christianity because of all the corruption and the hypocrisy, but I'm talking about Christ's original gospel. But I would say that Shelby, in my opinion, was endowed with this intuitive ability that was almost psychic. And we were used to, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, they started talking about ESP, extrasensory perception. They always linked it to 
personal melodramas of people in their lives or an act car accident was going to happen to someone that was averted and so forth. And that's legitimate. I understand that. But it's seldom been applied to intellectual labor in libraries and in sleuthing out these various mysteries. Uh, for myself, among Fordians, you know, I'm a believer in, um, it's probably not the right word when you're dealing with Charles Ford, but um, because he was anti-beliefs, but Charles, in the circles of Charles Ford, we kind of have a, that's uh, F-O-R-T, Charles Hoy, H-O-Y, Ford. Um, we have this kind of running joke that some of us have a library angel. You might have it. And um, you know, I'm not saying that I literally believe in that, but I was uh, in a library, a uh, Foley library at Gonzaga University in Spokane. And I was looking, this probably happened to you. I was looking for one research lead uh, with another set of books. And I just got mysteriously drawn over to another stack of books. And then I find a title um, in term from Jacob Neusner, Rabbi Jacob Neusner, which was related to the uh, Sanhedrin and um, Hillel's role inside the Sanhedrin. And I just hit treasure. Inside there were these foot, and I turned to the correct pages. Quite often, I'll pull a book off the shelf. My family is witness to this, and I'll open it to exactly the page that I'm looking for in that book, or maybe one or two pages away from that. And that happened to me at Foley Library. Now, does this happen every time? No, it doesn't. But I just sort of have the sense that in some ways, and maybe it's a delusion of mine, that I'm being guided. And with Shelby, and in terms of his life, you know, people used to ask me, well, what kind of library did he have? You know, it must be fascinating. And, you know, I, I love libraries. I think I have about 2,000 titles in my own. Some of them are in storage because I don't have room for them. Mr. Downard traveled around with Mackey's Encyclopedia of Freemasonry and the Man, Myth, and Magic Encyclopedia. And that was it. You know, <laughs> he drew it out of the ethereal matter of the universe, as far as what I could see. And also that mind of his, which also, like Mr. Saunders, uh, was practically a photographic memory. What, what he picked up, he retained. All right, Jason, I'm going to hand it over to you, but I'm so glad you mentioned Fort. Uh, I'm a fan. I read those things. I appreciate the perspective you get. And I always chuckle when someone is accused of being a Fortean thinker. But Jason, do you have something you want to add here? I'm just curious. I live on the North Shore of New Orleans, and I'm always going down into the French Quarter and all that. Did Mr. Downard have anything to say about the city of New Orleans or even you? <laughs> he sure did. <laughs> he had a whole lot to say about New Orleans, yeah, because of Marie Laveau and, um, you know, also... Uh, at the time that uh, I knew him, Moon Landrew was the uh, mayor of New Orleans. And of course, you know, Jason, the nickname of New Orleans is the Crescent City. Yep. And then from there, Shelby picked up on, he made a, a fairly deep study of Marie Laveau's first or espionage network, which of course, you know, at, at running that string of hair salons and also, I guess, houses of ill fame. Um, she was privy to a lot of gossip, some of it high level. And he felt that that was one of the nodal points. Uh, New Orleans was one of the nodal points for both the Kennedy assassination, which came out in Oliver Stone's movie, JFK, and also uh, regular JFK research. But um, he believed, for example, that some of the planning was done in Shakespeare, New Mexico. Now, note that name because this is all significant. And also um, other parts of the planning was done in the Storyville section of New Orleans. And Jason, you know where that is and what it's associated with. So here we have, for the dreaming mind of the group mind, Storyville and Shakespeare. And you look, you run over to the Oklahoma City uh, bombing. 
1995, and you see that some of the planning there was at the Dreamland Motel and the Shadows Motel. One of them was in Spokane, Washington, and has since been torn down. So these are things that, according to Shelby, are like Jungian key words that are speaking to the mind and also that's very important in this ceremonial killing process. So yeah, New Orleans was important to him. Uh, the, and uh, Jim Brandon in his book, Weird America, has a section on it as well, which is is worth checking into uh, that uh, cemetery number one, is it? Lafayette Cemetery number one? I think so, yes. It's near Storyville, is it not? I believe so. Yeah. Well, she and I traveled by train there, and my wife is not tipsy or anything else like that, but she is a gourmet, and I took her to this nice restaurant, which I rarely can do. This was many years ago. And uh, she she had your power, you know, the food there is sensational. It's a little too rich for me, but she enjoyed it. And I think she had one cocktail too many. So I was dragging her around midnight um, through the French Quarter, which later on I found out was rather dangerous to do. And we were in front of the house alleged to be Marie Laveau's. And we wondered why everything was so deserted there at midnight. But I guess you're not supposed to be there after a certain hour. But God had his hand on us and we, you know, we had a lovely time there. But yeah, for Shelby, um, New Orleans was one of the occult nodal points uh, in America, San Francisco being another. I just wanted to mention, I accept Shelby's intuition and I wish I had intuition at that level. I wonder if he could feel the energies in the place of the Southwest, because after he clued me in and you clued me in with King you Phil, know, nothing specific I don't in that think regard. it's arguable I'm heavily when you drawn can predict that like you're going to find uh, a thing, you do find a thing, call, like an and that pattern level, like is everywhere. Wise. I love so going to the my first part, quarter, I love spending Jason, as much time as possible to there. Under there. And Jason, I'd like to ask you, I'd like to ask you, what is your take on, uh, is there some significant occult symbolism that you've been able to parse out in, in New Orleans? You know, nothing in that regard, but I have to say that I'm absolutely drawn, I guess you could say energetically, to the French Quarter, and I try to spend as much time as possible there. And I'm very curious what others who are very dialed in might have to say about that place. There's a coffee shop we like to go to on a regular basis that's open pretty late, and that's where I like to do a lot of my writing in. A lot of the show here is written there. Is it still dangerous? Uh, There's a lot of drifters and things like that, like people who are, are clearly on drugs and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, things go on, but we don't go anywhere wandering around by ourselves uh, very late at night. We're in areas where there's a a lot of uh, congestion of just people coming and going. And on Bourbon Street, it's still the same as it ever was going up and down. There's always tons of people. Uh, Even late into the night, there'll still be a lot of people wandering around. So I wouldn't go wandering everywhere at midnight. But for the most part, I haven't found it to be too dangerous. I'd like to do a reading uh, on... um on Shrove Tuesday sometime of Poe's The Cask of Amontillado, because as you know, before he assassinates the Freemason, it's uh, it's Fat Tuesday down there in the crypt. <laughs> ah, yes, we just had that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, no, New Orleans, very important for the Kennedy assassination. I mean, and that was so important to get the cryptocracy really going in terms of the mind napping of the uh, of the collective group mind of America, where we are now, you know, practically half dead, whereas America in 1963 was very much alive. And if these revelations were being made now, there would be people hanging from lampposts in Washington, D.C. for the crimes they uh, have committed. So it was a you know, key factor, of course. Uh, and, and, and for him, New Orleans was, was a key to it. And in some of the other manuscripts that Crow quite rightly is, um, is asking me to get back into print, 
There's some more extensive work of his on New Orleans. And also he was very interested in the abbreviation N-O-L-A. So New Orleans, Louisiana, N-O-L-A, NOLA. But uh, memory doesn't serve me as to what connection he drew from that. But certainly the Crescent City and uh, the occult activities that went on there with the uh, voodoo, which of course he felt was a very oppressive uh, belief system for black people intended to maintain their subjugation and, uh, and of course, quite sinister. And then look at Haiti today, you know, it remains a basket case, largely because of the legacy of the Tantan Mukat, the Uncle Boogeyman, as uh, the Duvalu family had maintained their control over that island through voodoo. And I would say that we're not superior to them because we're being controlled here in America by a type of voodoo, maybe a more sophisticated version of it. You know, the one symbol I do see a lot is the uh, the police symbol is the crescent with the star. So it looks like a moon with a star. I see that in a lot of places. So that's the one occultish symbol that I that jumps out at me a lot when I'm spending time there. Right. Yeah, definitely. And then, of course, the whole thing with Lee Harvey Oswald and uh, down there on Camp Street and then the building being demolished. And one side, it was one address. The other side, it was another address. Guy Bannister uh, running his operation out of there. And uh, of course, in Louisiana, that's where uh, the great uh, district attorney, uh, Jim Garrison, uh, had the only prosecution to this day of anybody connected with uh, the Kennedy assassination, Clay Shaw, who denied he was a CIA agent. He was allowed to get away with that. And then uh, since then, in the freeze-thaw revelation of the method that Mr. Downer talked about, now it's been thawed that he was indeed uh, a CIA uh, asset. And it's so important to bring these prosecutions because all of the uh, cryptocracy crimes that we're talking about from 9-11 to Evalde, Las Vegas or whatever, the perpetrators always get away with it. And that's a great recruiting thing for the cryptocracy. They, they tell these assassins and saboteurs, you know, you're invulnerable, you know, you, you can't be touched. And Jim Garrison tried to break through with that and went through hell uh, in the course of uh, trying to bring uh, Shaw and the other conspirators to justice. And and thank God for what spade work he did, because it continues to provide, as we approach the 60th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, continues to provide us with important research material. Maybe this is a good place to shift over to Revelation of Method, which you mentioned you want to talk about. We typically start wrapping at about 15 minutes, Michael. Do you want to start touching on Revelation of Method, or would you rather roll that into a bigger time space? I'll let you decide whatever's best for you. Let's do this. We're going to open up our two, certainly with AI. You brought that up. I thought it was spot on. It is going to be such a massive part of our immediate future. It already has been. People don't realize how much it's involved for the last few years, at least. But we'll we'll open up our two with Revelation of Method. That's another thing. Uh, I was not aware of Revelation of Method at the level that I am now before I read the works that I could get attributed to Mr. Downard. And if I had never read anything more than the breakdown of uh, Kennedy and and all that surrounds it in the writings, and by the way, how much of that was you? You you edited this together. How much of the Kennedy breakout uh, was actually you? It had not occurred to me. You mentioned that you made edits and he was good with them. Oh, I wouldn't say more than fifteen uh, percent tops. You know, it, it's it's eighty five percent, Mr. Downard. No question about it. You know. You know, that's really where you start to learn critically the power of a word, the power of a name. And this goes all the way back to thousands of years ago where people 
are doing the OM, uh, you know, the meditation where they're saying this is the syllable of the, it's the same idea brought up into a modern time. And as you begin to unravel the account of, you know, minimally the JFK account, I don't know how anyone denies he does such a deft job of showing the geography mattering. He does such a deft job of showing the history of a geography mattering. And then the name game sounds like is like, and everything else that goes with it. I just really don't comprehend how any of that is denied at this point. And what's your take on it? Were you in line with Shelby's assessments or was some of it a bridge too far for you? No, it was never a bridge too far. I, in fact, uh, I probably didn't go far enough as far as Shelby went, but um, the introductions that he gave me, I mean, it wasn't just revelation of the method. Uh, it's also been twilight language because he talked about a, a character in Freemasonry, uh, a legendary character called Dr. Syntax. And this was their way of indicating that this twilight language phenomenon, which I wrote my book of the same name about, uh, was so key. And this is what you just raised, the manipulation of words. I mean, the Bible says, in the beginning was the word. George Orwell, the most important part of 1984, as great a book as that is, and as interesting as the narrative is, is his new speak appendix to that, where he lays out what we're going through uh, in the pre-AI era. I mean, once we segue through AI, then a lot of what Orwell has said, since we didn't really pay sufficient attention to turn our admiration for Orwell into a praxis rather than a theory, make it a theory in action and really do something about the manipulation of words. And instead, we're now the victims of that manipulation, which has ushered in what we're going to be talking about soon about AI. But yeah, Shelby opened those doors and, and um, you know, sometimes like when he talked about the million dollar gold certificates, your natural skepticism kicks in, you know, at that time, he seemed old to me because he was in his uh, 60s when I met him and I was in my 20s and, you know, being a, a, a callow youth, I thought he was kind of an old guy. And maybe this was just, you know, one eccentricity that goes along with it. And then Jim Brandon, who was very sober type of guy and even possibly more skeptical than I am, he saw the million dollar gold certificate. And uh, so there was some prima facie evidence of what Shelby was talking about. And I kind of learned not to doubt him anymore because, you know, Crow, again, it's that shaman aspect that certain human beings, it seems, are called out to know things. They're not infallible. We shouldn't make a pope out of anybody, but that they they have this guidance. I remember my macrobiotic Japanese teachers telling me about a Japanese soldier in World War II who had this ability, and he always guided his uh, unit, whatever it was, a squadron or whatever, away from the battle. Now, I guess a Japanese patriot could say he was a traitor, but he knew the war was lost, and he never fell into any traps that Americans had set to ambush their group. And I believe there is that power. It's the grace of God, but that power is there. It's not a power Shelby had. It's a talent that was bequeathed to him. And, um, you know, people can believe it or not, uh, but I go by, by their fruits, you shall know them. And he launched me into this. And now I feel I'm carrying it on to the best of my ability and trying to explain to people how the conspiracy theory movement itself has become toxic and the degree to which, and, and of course, there's honorable exceptions to that, but the degree to which it's it's uh, conspiring, perhaps unconsciously, to contribute to the bestialization of humanity, which C.S. Lewis talked about in his book, The Abolition of Man. 
And uh, I'll have a little bit more to say about that when we get into Revelation of the Method, unless you want me to, to bring it up right now. I think we're at the top of the hour. So, Michael, we're going to wrap it up for right now. So everyone who wants to find Michael Hoffman, you go to revisionisthistory.org. Rose has messaged me, and she's going to make sure that links to books, King Kill, um, all these things are made easier for everyone to find. Michael, I'll hold the offer. If there ever comes a time when you're not sure how you're going to get the downer works out, I will offer to be there for you in whatever capacity I can be. With that, we're going to wrap up hour one of episode 487. We're going to take a short break. The first hour is free to everybody at crow777radio.com. That is C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full two-hour, two-hour-plus episode. Members also get Shoot the Moon, the movie about all my telescope work for free. With that, I would like to wish everybody a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers. Belief 
is the enemy of knowing.